Hello, this is the Water Cooler Podcast coming to you from the Menzies Research Centre in Sydney. Welcome to the Water Cooler Podcast from the Menzies Research Centre. I'm Nick Cater. I'm Executive Director of the Menzies Research Centre. And we'd like to use these sessions really to explore some of the undercurrents, to test the waters around the issues that are really framing political debate and allowing us to find space to build good public policy options. Today's guest on Water Cooler is somebody whose name will be very familiar to anybody who's followed or even glanced at developments in the culture wars for the last couple of decades. Lyle Shelton came to prominence nationally in his role at the Australian Christian Lobby, where he was an outspoken voice for Christian values, socially conservative values, if you like, on some of the most fractious and difficult issues of the day. I came to admire him greatly, not so much exactly for the causes for which he fought, although they're very important ones, but because of his courage and ability to go into the Lion's Den, if you like. Lion, welcome. Uh, it's a great pleasure to have you here and to talk about your book. Welcome to Water Cooler. Uh, thanks very much, Nick. It's a privilege to be with you. Can I just talk about that Lion's Den experience? And, and it was your preparedness to go into interviews or I think you were on Q&A, weren't you, a number of times, I seem to recall. Yeah. And that's a very hostile environment, right? Even if you're only slightly to the right, it's a hostile yeah. experience. But for you to uphold those values that are anathema to not just the entire panel and the host, but the audience. It's very intimidating, isn't it? Did you find it so? Yes, I I did. It's a hostile environment. It's uh, set up and almost rigged. Uh, They would place people in the audience who were players in the debate, not just um, ordinary punters and you know, for, for example, one of the hot issues at the time that I went on Q&A was the whole safe schools issue of gender fluidity and whether or not children um, should be indoctrinated into the idea that they could be a boy or a girl. And uh, Q&A that night had one of the actual authors of uh, the safe schools program uh, in the audience. But of course, they never disclosed that. He just came across as a, as a teacher. So, so that's typical of the tricks of uh, our ABC that we fund and, and the left in general. I cut them some slack. I mean, they are there, obviously, to entertain. That's not what they're there to do. But that, I think the, it, not everybody understands completely how constructed that program can be in a way that deliberately makes it difficult for panellists almost always on the right. Yeah, look, that, that's right. Um, it, it is constructed. And, look, I went there in good faith, and uh, I think if they asked me again, I, I would go back because... I'm not ashamed of the things that uh, I believe in, that I have a conviction about. I, I believe they're evidence-based. Um, and I guess that's the frustration is, is when it's very difficult to make a point and, and make it fairly uh, and be given a fair go on a show like that. But uh, I believe the positions that I've taken over time um, are defensible in evidence. And so I'm not afraid to go and give an account in, in any environment. That includes Q&A. As I mentioned in our introduction, we're here to talk about your book, I Kid You Not, Notes from 20 Years in the Trenches of the Culture Wars, published by those excellent people at Connor Court with a very good forward by Jim Wallace, the, um, the founding figure, I think, in the ACL and, and a great admirer of yours from reading the forward. Um, but first, I mean, the book's titled I Kid You Not and it's about your 
story of your life or part of your life. But let's go to the bit you don't talk about so much, you as a kid, <laughs> growing up into woman. Just give me a bit about your background. What went into making Lyle Shelton? Well, I wasn't trying to write an autobiography uh, and I wasn't necessarily trying to be evasive about that. Um, I focus on the political battles. But, yeah, I grew up in Toowoomba. Um, I loved growing up in Toowoomba. It's, it's uh, a great city. My family all still live there. I'm living in Brisbane these days. But uh, my dad was a, a pastor of a um, charismatic church, um, what people might refer to as a Pentecostal church. Uh, he was a pioneer and an innovator in the uh, mid-70s in terms of um, what was happening in that church world, having uh, left the Methodist church, seeking a, perhaps a more meaningful expression of his faith. So he, he pioneered a church there. I grew up in that environment in a community of people who were passionate about uh, their faith, passionate about uh, living uh, in community together. Um, it was a mixture of people from all work, walks of life. And um, we had a Christian school, which the church started, which my dad founded. Uh, and so I attended that. Um, and that, that, those, those influences obviously had a big influence. Um, my wider family were always interested in politics. My dad's family was from Mergen on the South Burnett. So family um, get-togethers around the, the table at the farm, always centred on um, politics. Um, and the Bielke-Peterson era obviously was uh, a thing in those days. So, so I, I sat as a child listening to all these conversations and politics just got into my blood uh, as, uh, as Christianity got into my soul. Yeah, we had a bit of a discussion earlier before we started, before we pressed the record button, on on this prep proposition, the proposition that Toowoomba's a very conservative town. I, I mean, I've spent a fair bit of time up there, as you, as you know, and in the surrounding region, the Lockyer Valley, and uh, up there on the beautiful Darling Downs. I've got lots of friends there, people I keep in touch with, great people. But is it particularly conservative? Is it sort of outstandingly conservative from an Australian point of view? It has that reputation, but I wouldn't say it's any more conservative than other parts of regional Australia or, or suburban Australia. There was certainly people who opposed my stances on socially conservative issues. There were people who supported it. But um, I don't think Toowoomba is any more conservative uh, than, than other parts of mainstream Australia. Obviously, our inner city areas uh, have become more I hate the term progressive because I think the policy ideas that lie behind that are not progressive at all. Uh, but I think Toowoomba is, is very much a snapshot of um, mainstream Australia. And, and, you know, I'm so glad I grew up there rather than in, in perhaps more of the uh, woke areas of the nation. Perhaps this is just an indication of quite how out of touch the, the mainstream elite, if you like, the, uh, the intelligentsia in our inner cities are. My experience of this incident, well, I was deputy editor of the Sunday Telegraph, which has a massive sale outside capital city it's about 50 50 so about you know and a big sale in those days we sold about three hundred fifty thousand copies outside of sydney and that meant that we always had to be possibly more conservative in our approach than people in the office but no matter how conservative we tried to be we could never seem to be conservative enough it's not not at all criticism it's just saying where the balance of australian opinion is and it's it's probably far further towards the conservative end than anybody on the ABC would even imagine, I would think. Look, I, I think it is, Nick, and um, I, I can only prove this anecdotally, but in, in writing my book, um, you know, I cover a lot of um, socially conservative issues. They're, they're issues that I've campaigned on and been involved in over the years, but uh, it's very hard to find anyone who uh, would disagree. That They might find some of the subject matter a bit awkward, um, 
they understand that the zeitgeist is against uh, these issues, but uh, at, at an intellectual or logical level, people, you know, they don't disagree with the proposition that prostitution is harmful to women and that we probably shouldn't have legalized it. Um, that late term abortion is a, is a bad thing that, you know, that um, kids shouldn't be told that their gender is fluid. Um, they, these are things that if you say these things, you know, on the ABC or on Q and A as I have, you, you get howled down. But um, I've found very few mainstream Australians who are not religious like me uh, don't disagree with the sort of propositions on most issues. I think the problem is the media gatekeepers don't allow the other side of the debate to be told. And I guess that's what I've tried to do uh, in my own way in this book. Yeah, and look, to be, let's be fair about this, I mean, we, we are Men's Research Centre, we're affiliated to the Liberal Party, and there are many, many great people of goodwill and honest intent uh, within the Liberal Party uh, on both sides of some of those debates. I suppose the point is, though, that you have you should have a right to contribute to that debate, shouldn't you? You shouldn't be shut out, and certainly not in you know in a Liberal Party, which is supposed to be about free discussion. That's right, Mick, and, and uh, I guess that's um, part of the, the frustration that I've felt over the years is um, there has been an unwillingness to discuss difficult public policy areas, particularly in the social area. You'll often hear conservative politicians say, oh, we only talk about economic issues. We don't discuss the social issues. And yet every day, the left, whether it's um, the Greens or the left of the Labor Party or, or some of the left of the Liberal Party, if I can uh, use that term, they're out there discussing uh, whether it's, uh, well, let's take the marriage debate. They, they advocated, you know, forcefully for years for the de-gendering of marriage. And they said there'd be no consequences. And of course, that's proven to be not true. So they argue their case forcefully. I would say they're minorities, but they bring things to a tipping point. Uh, and then the rest of uh, mainstream Australia is left uh, with the consequences uh, of these issues. Um, and uh, I, I think the other side of the story is, is often not told by, um, by the media or even by those who hold positions of power in, um, in politics who, who, you know, shut down debate. And uh, I've seen that from my earliest days as a, as a young councillor on Toowoomba City Council, uh, finding that um, bringing evidence uh, to the council table on, on social issues was not welcome because it was just assumed that society has moved on from those debates, whether it was prostitution, whether it was so-called adult entertainment that involved you know, using young women for the entertainment of men in ways that I won't describe on this podcast. The fact that these things go on in our politics and they're not talked about because certain elites decide that the discussion's over bothers me enormously because I believe in free inquiry and, and nothing should be off limits for discussion. One thing you do, I think, quite well is tease out the contradictions in some of the positions on the, um, the sort of cultural left. You, and particularly, that, you draw attention to the fact that, um, you know, the Me Too movement has been very strong, possibly well-intentioned, and in some, some areas quite effective in, in bringing justice mm. for women who've been abused in some way by a powerful man. But there's no or virtually no discussion or concern at, say, live online porn or, or women who prepare to abase themselves in that way for the pleasure of presumably, presumably mainly of men. So there is a hypocrisy here, isn't it? And, and somehow it's hard to figure out why. I think there's a lot of cognitive dissonance in our society, Nick, and um, on a whole range of issues. I mean, pornography is a great example. 
and I, and I mentioned this in the book, I mean, the week uh, before Harvey Weinstein was exposed for his terrible abuse of many young actresses over many years on the casting couch, uh, the week before that uh, happened and Me Too was spawned, um, Hugh Hefner died. And so a week earlier, everyone's saying what a fine fellow Hugh Hefner is who, who gave us uh, sexual expressionism and anything goes. Uh, all, all those stories coming out this week of the abuse of the women in the Playboy Mansion, I notice on news.com. So the world is saying what a fine fellow Hef was, and then um, Harvey Weinstein is, is exposed for living out Hef's dream, um, Jeffrey Epstein, uh, another one. So I think we've got to have a, a good hard look. In my political journey, I've often found myself with strange, um, I'm not going to use the term bedfellows, but uh, fellow travellers um, in terms of radical feminists who... I've gone to parliamentary inquiries with on whether it's on the issue of prostitution, adult entertainment, the radical feminists um, who, who get the inherent exploitation of women that goes uh, with so much of the public policy that we've liberalised in recent years um, have become friends and supporters. Uh, and, and more recently on the issue of commercial surrogacy, which of course is one of, is the next thing that our friends in the same-sex marriage movement are arguing for so that two men can have the benefits of same-sex marriage by having unfettered access to babies through a rental market in women's wombs and a, and a you know, monetary trade in human babies. This is the sort of stuff that's not being talked about in the media, but it's all there in taxpayer-funded reports pushed through public policy. But because conservatives uh, say, no, we don't talk about social issues, the left just get away with this without any public debate and it's just a few crazies like myself on the <laughs> conservative end and, uh, and the radical feminists on, on the other end of the spectrum that are raising these concerns in the public square. I, I want you to help me out with some of the dilemmas I face as head of the Menzies Research Centre in when and how or if we should buy into some of these issues. Obviously, you can't buy into everything. There's a lot of things around. And right now... Yeah. The economy is pretty high on the list and international security and strategic relations with China, lots of big things there. So look, during the, during the same-sex marriage debate, I was actually quite pleased to be approached by people from both sides of the debate and asked to speak out on their side. Normally, I wouldn't want to be silent on an issue which I feel strongly about, and I do feel strongly about that issue. But in that instance, I just felt... in an issue like this, which was to, to a large extent a matter of conscience and the party was divided, the Menzies, Center should, Menzies Research Centre should say, well out, we shouldn't be taking sides, except on the issue of free speech, I should say, we did we did come out strongly on that. But recently, you know, I've been sort of tiptoeing around the LGBTQ issue and, and I've decided that we have to weigh into this because all these things ultimately have a big effect on public policy beyond the issue themselves, don't they? They have an effect on how a long-term effect on, you know, the erosion of the institution of the family, for instance, which is something about every Liberal should be very concerned. In your view, you advise me, what should I do? Well, far be it for me to advise you, Nick. I mean, I'm, I've been one of your greatest fans and read your work for many years and, and really respect and appreciate it. But look, I think all of us who are involved in public affairs uh, as, as lobbyists or think tanks uh, in, or in politics, we've got to follow the evidence. And um, I just think um, we've got to the stage now where we're not following evidence anymore and we can't have a, a proper debate. John Anderson, the former Deputy Prime Minister, keeps saying you can't get good policy out of a bad debate. We had a very bad debate in 2017 and, and sadly because a lot of good people chose to stay out of the debate. Uh, but um, everything that 
the Coalition for Marriage, uh, of which I was uh, a spokesman for, said has come true. We said this would be a referendum on freedom of speech and whether children would be radically indoctrinated into gender-fluid ideology. Uh, now, you've had Claire Chandler on your program just a few weeks ago uh, being sued by activists for saying that, you know, biological males uh, shouldn't be um, participating in women's sport. Um, I'm being sued by a couple of drag queens for saying that um, gender-fluid drag queens uh, and, and, you know, drag queens who are representatives of the adult entertainment industry are dangerous role models for children. Now, we said freedom of speech would come under pressure as a result of this political agenda, and it is. It's weaponized state-based anti-discrimination laws. Um, we said that children would be indoctrinated, and they're being indoctrinated. Safe schools or variations of it are now compulsory in most Australian states, including states uh, that are governed by Liberal Party governments. Um, and uh, I just think we can't afford to ignore these things anymore because they're having consequences. And the silence of so many people in the years leading up to the 2017 marriage plebiscite um, and the, the acceptance of the, the claims of the other side that love is love and there's no consequences were, 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 was naive. And uh, we're now bearing the consequences of that. So I, I just think we can't afford to... Um, to sit back out of these cultural debates anymore. They're all being driven by the same people, whether it's the radical left in the, on the climate debate or in the identity politics. And, and I think we've got to you know, wise up to the fact that there's a serious agenda globally. Um, they're active, they are using the tools of democracy. We are not, and, and now we're paying the price. Well, thanks, I think you've answered, answered the question for me. So <laughs> yeah, I think you're right, when, when, when it, when you see that this is impinging on free speech or freedom of religion or any of the freedoms which we hold so dear, that's the point at which nobody can afford to remain silent. But, but also justice for children, Nick, and, and this didn't get as much um, airplay as it should have, but it, it was all there in black and white. You know, I mentioned Tim Wilson's report as Human Rights Commissioner called Resilient Individuals uh, in 2015, and uh, that report advocated for commercial surrogacy. I was shocked when I read that. And, and it said commercial surrogacy is needed so that two men can realise the benefits of same-sex marriage. Now, I think it's incredibly unjust to uh, create a, a monetary trade in human babies in a rental market in women's wombs. Now, it's not hard to find this stuff. It's there in taxpayer-funded reports, and yet it's not being called out. And um, so, uh, yeah, I, I, I think we've got to get involved in these debates. <laughs> I think what you've illustrated there is that the devil, probably literally the devil in this argument, the devil is in the detail. And it's okay to ask people a question, well, do you think that people of same-sex attraction have the same rights as everybody else? Well, yes. But then when you look at the consequences of that and what that leads to, so as you say, surrogacy and the details of that surrogacy, the issue of renting a womb, if I can put it in that rather emotional way these are things we've got to consider oh do we want these things should we should allow those things in this country are they good are they good for the child are they good for the yeah. the, the biological mother you've got to probe these yeah. things haven't you we have and, and they are horrible and and um you know by saying these things and opening up these questions i mean no ill will towards uh same-sex couples um I, I supported the removal of all discrimination against same-sex couples uh, back in 2008, 2009, when the then Rudd government uh, did that. So, but, you know, th there comes a place where you've got to look at the uh, 
policy, public policy consequences of, of certain moves and degendering marriage, you know, has those sort of consequences. And that, that's just but one, uh, Nick, and, you know, it's, I'm sure you didn't want to labour the whole um, podcast on, on same-sex marriage, but it, it was an important debate and the consequences are ongoing. And, and the consequences of not uh, probing the claims of the other side and just accepting them um, on face value uh, continue to be enormous. We still haven't fixed the issue of free speech or freedom of religion or, or how we are going to navigate uh, justice for children in this um, brave new world. Yeah, you're, you're right. I do want to talk about more about the consequences of that debate than the debate itself. The debate's over, and I thought one of the one of the most heartening things was really how the, the people on the no side, a lot of them are heartbroken, a lot of them are very downcast, but they accepted the result, right? There was no... Nobody said, look, we've got to relitigate this, we've got to argue it again. I mean, you know what's happening in Brexit in yeah. Britain where they... You know, the, the anti-Brexit people are saying, no, we've got to have the... No, no, no it didn't happen. And I, I thought that was of great credit to people like yourselves uh, and others at the forefront of that debate. But the consequences are there, um, and I want to talk about freedom of religion, but first the consequences, personal consequences to you. So let's refresh people's memories. During that debate, the headquarters of the Australian Christian lobby was essentially, I think, firebombed. I think that's the expression we'd use, is it? by a, um, turned out to be a rather sad individual um, who later committed suicide, or that was very sad, but the police came out right away mm. and said, uh, no, you know, this was not related to the same-sex marriage debate, and yeah. yet, as you show in your book, there was no doubt that it was by the utterings of this man himself, even including in his police interview. What motivated the federal police, because this was in Canberra, what motivated the federal police to deny the obvious? It's a really good question, Nick, and um, it's one that I think about a lot. It's been almost three years since that fateful day. I, I can only think that the federal police, knowing what they knew on the night of the bombing uh, from, the trans, from the interview that uh, this poor distressed badly burned, in, he was trying to kill himself on the night and he failed, they uh, did a five-minute interview, video interview with him in the emergency room at Canberra Hospital where he, he confessed to the fact that he didn't like the ACL, he knew who we were, didn't like, it, didn't like religion, didn't like our views on sexuality, etc. And, of course, later on it came out, once we got his name, that he had been an, an activist in the United States during the gay marriage debate in um, California, worked with Democrat uh, politicians. Um, and yet the police said the very next day, with all this, in possession of all this information, um, by 11 o'clock the next morning after the night of the bombing that there was no political, religious or ideological motivation. Now, by the definition of, of terrorism um, under the Attorney General's Department, a, a bombing of this nature with that sort of motivation constitutes terrorism. And uh, I think the Australian Federal Police, uh, and I'm hypothesising here now, but I think they were desperate to create a situation where they did not have to tell the Australian people that what had happened at the ACL was an act of domestic terrorism. Uh, I think that's the reason for um, saying what they said, which, which of course was later proven by some terrific journalism by Cameron Price of Channel 7 and um, Miranda Devine of the uh, Daily Telegraph to be completely false. So the, the, resu the result for you personally, though, is that, that you and your family essentially needed protection because the same-sex marriage, or I'm not saying the mainstream same-sex marriage, protagonists but some on the fringes saw fit to put your address out on public this is where this man lives and you you had to install yeah. your own protection and even now you 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 have to watch your own security 
that must be horrible. What, how, how does that affect your it, it, life? Look, um, it, it, it's, it's something you think about from time to time. I mean, it was distressing at the time. Uh, you said this fellow was on the fringes. Michael Barnett was the fellow who tweeted my home address and that of other board members of ACL on, onto the internet after our office was bombed. Uh, most irresponsible thing to do. Uh, I begged the police <laughs> to, to do something, uh, to, you know, to go and talk to Michael Barnett. They said they couldn't. Uh, but he, he's a mainstream player uh, in their, you know, in their movement. Um, so we had to have security cameras installed at our um, home in Canberra, an alarm system. When I moved to Queensland, we, we now live in a secure apartment complex with uh, video surveillance. Um, this is not the Australia that I grew up in. Um, and uh, I'm, you know, it bothers me that um, this has happened in our nation. It's, it's not what I thought would ever happen uh, growing up in Toowoomba as a young person. And uh, again, you know, none of us can take free speech uh, for granted anymore. And, um, you know, I I yearn for um, change in our nation where we get back to civil discourse, where we can agree or to to disagree and do so civilly. Let's talk about, about faith. So your, 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 the ACL was, I think a, a, a wonderful initiative because what its, its intention was to bring, matters of faith and the views of people within uh, the faith community to bear on the political agenda, right? It's a good thing. I mean, everybody should do that, right? I mean, they should... Yeah. If, if they had a, a Australian plumbers lobby, that would be a good thing, right? Because for democracy, yeah. you don't have to believe in God. You just have to believe in democracy to say that's a good thing, right? But you, exactly. you, you had a pretty rough reception, didn't you, in a lot of quarters for daring to speak about matters of faith in the public arena. Yeah, that's right. I, I mean, all AC, you know, ACL is seen as a sinister, nefarious organisation by militant secularists who think there should be no place for some of their fellow citizens to participate in democracy. Um, and they raise this straw man argument of separation of church and state, which, which was never meant to mean keep uh, people of faith out of public policy. That was never the intention. It was, it was actually meant to keep the state out of the church and, and, and the church from running the state, the separate institutionally. It was never meant to disbar citizens from, from uh, participation in democracy. And so ACL, as you said, is a brilliant idea conceived by Jim Wallace, uh, former brigadier in the Australian Army, commander of the SAS and a great mentor and friend of mine. And uh, he, he's been able to, through that organisation and, and um, the, the wonderful staff who work there and Martin Isles who leads it now to really rally the voice of um, Christians from right across the board from, uh, you know, it's not purporting to speak on behalf of the denominations. They do that themselves, but grassroots Christians from across the spectrum um, find that uh, its advocacy gives them a voice into the political process. And I think politicians appreciate it because they get a clear coherent understanding of key issues and you know we, we would advocate on a range of issues uh, obviously the, the ones we've just been discussing have been fairly high profile but we did a lot of work advocating for a more generous aid budget probably something that many in the liberal party wouldn't have agreed with we worked hard against poker machines and uh, with reverend tim costello for poker machine uh, reform because of the social harm and damage that they did um, i've written uh, on indigenous issues so, um, you know, there is a, a certain caricature, but, um, you know, in the 10 years old of ACL, we, we worked hard on a, a big range of issues, trying to represent Christian concern uh, into the public space. And uh, I love that work. Um, I love the variety of it. 
Um, but obviously some of it was um, more acceptable uh, than others. Um, but uh, my, my real hope with ACL, and, and uh, I hope that I've contributed to this and I hope the team continues to take this on and I know they are, is that you know, we make it normal and natural to talk about some of these difficult issues that have consequences the pro-life issues. Um, one of the shocking things I write about in the book is, is the fact that a whole bunch of 40-odd parliamentarians put their signature on a submission which said we, we need to allow unborn babies who are disabled to be killed because they're too expensive to look after outside the womb. You know, th- these are shocking things that are going on behind the scenes in our politics, which groups like ACL are equipped to research and discover and to try and bring to the public's attention because I don't think mainstream Australians support those sort of views. No, and I don't think that, you know, to go back, if you like, to the um, latte-sipping elites or whatever we want to call them, right, they, they, they don't know it either. They don't know that there's such a well of support there. And I think what you did at ACL was to tap that great surge of support for conservative positions and make it visible. I remember when we had that debate in the New South Wales Parliament about decriminalisation of abortions. There was a day when I went, and they were debating this in the Parliament, and I went through Martin Place. You couldn't move. You know, it was full, 5,000, probably more people um, in rallies organised by, I think, largely by ACL. And um, I just thought, I just hope that people on our side of politics in in Parliament House in New South Wales are watching and listening because these are essentially our people, right? They're not radicals on the fringes of the green left. They are normal, everyday, forgotten people, if you like, who we would hope would vote on the Liberal side. Well, I think there's a real danger there. And and that that rally, ACL was obviously a part of it. It was after my time, Martin Isles, my successor, spoke there and did a brilliant job. But certainly large elements of the Catholic Church, the Maronite Church, a lot of the immigrant Christians um, uh, were very active in that. And and they are a a large and powerful voice that are really making themselves, um, their views known politically in Western Sydney, particularly and good on them. And I think starting to even register with the Labor Party belatedly. But but you're right, these are people who would normally have found a home uh, in the Liberal Party. And I hope still can. Uh, and I'm, I'm seeking to navigate my way back into the LNP here in Queensland. They've got me in the naughty corner for uh, being with Corey Bernardi's party for a, a, a stint. And I understand that. Uh, but um, and I think most mainstream Australians, even if they might be partial to the idea of abortion, still locked in the 60s, 70s mindset of a you know, clump of, of cells, not realising that um, the left you know, are far more extreme and are using the tacit support of, of um, mainstream Australians for, you know, who have been misinformed over the decades to support extreme agendas, it really makes a lot of mainstream Australians and particularly, you know, uh, people of faith uh, really scratch their heads about what's become of conservative politics. I do want to move on to your, your glorious political career uh, as a candidate. <laughs> Inglorious. <laughs> you, 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 you made the decision... I mean, I think a lot of people in the LNP would have welcomed you on board as a candidate for the LNP when you moved out of your role at ACL. But you decided to throw in your lot with Corey Bernardi and his Australian Conservatives. What led that decision at that time? There weren't enough voices within the parliaments saying the things which I know so many people believe. I mean, many things we, you and I have discussed now are agreed on by a large cohort of parliamentarians. And um, I suppose the, the marriage debate was a bit of a tipping point 
for me, um, the silence of people who I knew understood all the consequences that we've talked about, but chose not to speak and participate in the debate. And, and I thought, well, I can't sit and just be grumpy about this. I need to try and be an answer to the problem. And, and uh, I just feel, felt like we need, needed more courageous voices within on the inside of parliament. It's great to have lobby groups like ACL and others who, who do great work. That's indispensable. But I felt after 10 years at ACL, um, you know, perhaps I should have a go at trying to get on the inside. I liked what Corey was saying. Um, I like his courage. Um, I felt like his values were, were the true Liberal Party values. As I read the speeches of Sir Robert Menzies, um, uh, I, I saw them very much um, intertwined in, in what Corey was saying. And, and Corey himself would say he didn't leave the Liberal Party, the Liberal Party left him. Now, you know, that was an inglorious period for us. We, we got less votes than the Marijuana Party and the Animal Justice Party. But I think um, Scott Morrison coming back uh, into the frame and, um, and moving the party in a more conservative direction really cut our grass. Um, I'm not saying we would have necessarily got elected ha had that not have occurred. It's still a very tough proposition and I knew that going into it. But um, th there's no doubt I think the Liberal Party is, is returning to a more, is, is being more responsive to conservative concerns and, and to its true base, uh, in, in my opinion. Uh, look, mm. I have no regrets about it. I enjoyed the experience. I have great admiration for, for Corey, but I do think there's still a, a great need for people to find uh, their voice and find the conservative voice within the Liberal Party to advocate for them. It's not because the party policy isn't necessarily aligned. It, it just is often just a lack of advocacy and the Greens get up every day and they make their case for their crazy ideas. And, and before long, after a few years or decades, they're mainstream. And uh, I think the reason why Australians have... Um, you know, drifted uh, is because they're not hearing the other side of the debate. And um, politics is really important uh, to ensuring the other side of the debate is heard, but it's not heard enough. Well, uh, we could go on talking forever, but we must draw this to a close eventually. But first, uh, finally, perhaps, um, let's talk about Prime Minister Scott Morrison after he became Prime Minister. He was quite quick and open to declare his Christian faith, not just his Christian faith, but his Pentecostalism. And a lot of people thought this is going to go badly for him, but it didn't, did it? I mean, there was almost universal acceptance that that was him and it was part of who he is and, and good on him, I thought. Is that what you picked up? Yeah, absolutely. Um, look, I think the best thing you can be is be true to yourself. And, um, you know, I've known Scott since before he got in, well, just before he got into Parliament. Um, and uh, he's... A, he was very open at his first Meet Your Candidate forum that ACL ran, he, and that was a public event. In his maiden speech, he was very upfront about his Christianity, his Pentecostal Christianity. And uh, I, I think good on him for, for being true to that. And um, I think, you know, Australians, they may not be people who wear faith and religion on their, on their shirt sleeves. They don't. But uh, they respect people who are authentic uh, about where they are. And, and I think... Um, full credit to, to Morrison for being upfront with the people uh, on that. And uh, I think deep down people do understand that um, there's a certain virtue and moral compass that comes from uh, Christianity. And I, and I think even if people have drifted away from um, certainly overt faith, uh, they, they respect what comes from that wellspring and can see that that is actually, you know, a force for good in, in the nation and in public life. And uh, I think, I think they give him marks for that. I think they do. No matter what the atheistic elites say, and no matter 
the sins of people in the church or sometimes the church itself that it's not infallible, right? Yeah. Despite all that, most people in this country have got tremendous respect for anybody with faith and a commitment, as often flows from Christianity, to to a life of unselfishness, to to a life of treating your neighbour as you would yourself. And... It's evident to me every year, and it's it's sad, probably COVID's going to kill this one too, but the Salvation Army, whenever they go out without appeal, mm. it's a very hard-hearted, cold-hearted Australian that doesn't dip his hand in his pocket at that stage, isn't it? Yeah, Absol- absolutely. Look, I've had the privilege of door-knocking for the Salvos on many occasions, um, and uh, the generosity of Australians is incredible. And uh, that's a shame of COVID. Um, look, I, I think, um, yes, you, you're right. There, there have been some terrible sins in the church and um, certainly the church is not perfect. But um, I do believe the church is indispensable to Australian life. And as, as we are grappling around in this postmodern world, trying to find uh, our moral compass, uh, having, you know, lost our moorings, um, I, I think people are looking for for meaning and purpose in life. And there's no doubt that um, virtue does come from the Christian religion and the the virtue that's made nations like Australia and America and Great Britain great uh, has come from the wellspring of Christianity. Um, It hasn't come from atheism, secularism. That's been a disaster in the 20th century. Um, It it hasn't come from other religions as much as there are some some wonderful aspects of, of, uh, you know, other religions like Islam and Buddhism. There's, there's truths in all of them, but um, there's essentially something that's come from the wellspring of Christianity that has animated Western civilization, that's made countries like Australia a place where people from all over the world want to come and live. And um, that hasn't been an accident. And uh, I think we need to rediscover some of those virtues as a nation, chief of which is the ability to make proper scientific inquiry, <laughs> whether it's into the, the hard sciences or the social sciences. Uh, before we make public policy. Yeah, and that's an aspect we haven't had time to discuss from your book, your, your insistence on on following the truth, and not just the, the truth in spiritual terms, but the truth in scientific terms, wherever it leads us. And, and you've got some interesting things to say about climate change and other issues on that. But look, I'll thank you for, for joining me. And I, I might just stray from my normal careful path. And normally I avoid getting into internal party politics, but can I just say that I, I think it would be a jolly good idea if the... Uh, the LMP went out and slaughtered the fatted calf and welcomed the prodigal son home. <laughs> <laughs> You've got a great contribution to make. And uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Nick. That's very kind. It's been a privilege to be on this uh, podcast. You've been listening to the Menzies Research Centre podcast from Sydney, Australia. If you'd like to join the growing number of people who are supporting our work, you can do so by going online and becoming a subscriber from just $10 a month. MenziesRC.org. I'm Nick Cater. Thank you for listening. Thank you.